it's got to be real from the get-go and you've got to be prepared to walk the walk go the miles do the distance be prepared to graft and be so certain and confident that your business plan was for you and it will work that when you are trying to persuade people to come on that journey it's an inviolable truth and you can stand behind it and believe in it welcome to secret leaders today i'm joined by sir robin miller as one of the world's leading record producers, he's worked with the likes of Sade, Randy Crawford, Eric Clapton, Sting, The Grateful Dead, and many, many others. And if that wasn't enough, he also produced the Atlanta Olympic Games opening ceremony in 1996. He's gained over 160 gold and platinum discs, including 44 number one hits, representing over 400 million pounds of sales worldwide, bringing over 300 million pounds in overseas income to the UK. In 2010, Robin stepped away from full-time music production to concentrate on his public and charitable roles. Robin now continues his mission to unlock potential in disabled applicants for key roles on public, private, and third sector boards. So, Robin, welcome to Secret Leaders. Thank you very much, Dan. Delighted to be here. Okay, there is something unusual and surprising that connects you and me. And I'm going to start this interview in a totally different way to how I've ever started any interview. Um, you're blind I'm blind Dan you have retinitis pigmentosa I have retinitis pigmentosa and my dad had retinitis pigmentosa fabulous so I have a lived I'm probably unlike other people who generally have interviewed you I have a lived Mm -hmm. experience of growing up with a father who is blind and had retinitis pigmentosa for certainly all the life that I've lived with him he passed away 10 years ago sorry to hear that and when i was reading your brief and i was um you know reading about you and and learning more in prep for the interview there's so much that you have to share that is so relatable to me in a unique way and the only other person i ever really heard talk about this kind of stuff was my dad which i wouldn't know of course you know because i'm just me so i'm i'm as interested in that your experience as you are to be honest thank you I guess Mm. the things that I wanted to share was you have two, I think, unique points that you like to make. And they were things that my dad said too. The first is being blind is amazing. It is. My dad didn't necessarily describe being blind as amazing in those ways. But what he always referred to, obviously, is when you have a humongous physical, uh, you know, disability, a disability, regardless whether it's physical, mental, whatever. But when you have a clear disability, you have to rely on other ways to navigate the world and it can unlock a totally different life experience that makes things extremely unique to you and can be a superpower. I 100% agree with what you just said. And I'm going to come on to that from your lived experience. And then the second thing I wanted to share was my dad started a company Mm-hmm. and ran it his whole life, basically. So when I grew up, my dad was a business owner, which ironically, I'm now an entrepreneur and I never wanted to be one because it, <laughs> it caused terrible stress and, and, and poor health for him, which always really put me off until um, he actually passed away and then I decided I was going to do it anyway. But I I think the thing that really resonated with me when I was learning about your journey, which is very similar to my dad's, is no one would employ him because he was blind. So he couldn't get a job. 
So he started his own company and he employed 200 people and absolutely loved what he did. And Ain't that the truth? And you know what? Like, similar to you, when people would be like, how on earth is a blind guy a famous record producer? My dad, you know, his in gag was that he actually ran a fashion manufacturing business and everyone was like, you can't see the fucking clothes. Um, so a lot of shared experience here, which I'm finding highly relatable. That is my experience as the son of someone who was blind. and um, Thrilling. That's thrilling yeah. to me. It's been it's been rare. it's rare. I've never actually had a proper conversation with someone else who has uh, lived with retinitis pigmentosa, mm. blind, and has positive things to share about being blind or having a disability. Mm. So mm. I wanted to start there. Tell me why being blind is amazing, Robin. Being blind is amazing, Dan. Every day is an adventure. I mean, getting out of your bedroom and bathroom is an adventure because you <laughs> you don't know what's in front of you. Getting out of your apartment in the morning, you've already had five or six adventures. So you've got to be up for it. And every day is a, a leap into the unknown with infinite faith. And if you don't have that infinite faith, I think you, you would become fearful and timid. And what it's done for me is to move from bravery, which is definitely how I negotiated poor vision, not no vision, growing up as a child and a young person, it was bravery, it was deep breath time. Then that bravery gives way to fearlessness, which is a very different thing. It means that you don't experience that fear. You move, you move beyond that fear. So your boundaries open up. So yeah, you start by getting out of your bathroom, getting out of your apartment, and you end up going on your own by plane to Los Angeles and living with the Grateful Dead for a year not really in advance thinking, my goodness me, this is going to be a very difficult thing. Just, wow, this is going to be an amazing adventure. And of course, you're absorbing the sounds, the smells, the the relationships within people, the climate, all the rest of it. You have a very full and abundant experience. A common fallacy for people that you meet who imagine that being blind is like them putting a bag over their head. And I equate this to, if you approach a piano, never having played it before, you'll take tentative steps and you'll play a couple of notes timidly. If you practice the piano 16 hours a day, the way that I practice being blind 16 hours a day, five to 10 years later, you're flying over the keyboards, you're playing Prokofiev, the music's not in front of you on the stand, and you're as far away from the imagined experience of people coming to you saying, I can't imagine how terrible it is being blind. And I just go, well, I'll agree. You can't imagine what it's like being blind because I am the concert pianist of no vision. That is beautifully put. Although I will say one thing, my dad did have the uh, black and bluest legs ever. Do you escape that with your practice or you also no, happen to? No, no, no. Ulcers, black and blue. Um, I've got bit of a mark here on my forehead. I think yeah. that was my bathroom mirror. Yeah. Um, Still happens. No, but but you just you just brush it off. You just go <clears throat> like that and you just brush it off. No different from a rugby player. You feel it afterwards. You know, you go home and you nurse your wounds, but at the time you do become very hardy. Yep. 
Exactly. I mean, it's an incredible way to build resilience, right? And mm. resilience is exactly the core ingredient that you need to live, I think, a successful life. It's not just about entrepreneurs or music or anything like that. To have a successful life, you need to be able to face challenges and get back on your feet when life knocks you down. And how often do you literally physically get knocked down when you're blind? My dad um, was Irish. He was ex-army. He boxed for the army, played rugby for the army. And in his infinite wisdom at the age of nine, he enrolled me in a boxing club. And I had, I'm going to guess, 55 fights. Um, I don't recall winning any of them, but I recall going for it every time. People soon learned that if they sent a jab straight at me, I could see it and fend it off. But the looping haymaker, the uppercut, anything coming from the side with tunnel vision, I missed them, so I'd get clubbed without knowing they were coming. Years and years later, I sat down with my dad and I said, why did you do that, actually? Why did you do that? And why did you persevere when I used to come back black and blue? And he said, I knew that when you went through life, you were going to get hurt. And I wanted you to get used to getting hurt and moving forwards anyway. And I wouldn't recommend this to other people as necessarily the right way to approach a child with a disability but it worked for me it me he he pushed me out on a bike I said I want to cycle to Brighton my mother was probably hiding under the bedclothes thinking oh my goodness me this is a nightmare and he'd say no go on off you go go on have fun and of course I came off the bike two or three times mangled the bike lots of times I kept riding a bike until I rode in Kensington High Street until I rode into a stationary red double-decker bus and I figured well if I didn't see that coming it might be time to move on to other things good yeah exactly so you create your own barriers of self-awareness as well If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. 
And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, Robin, you've got a very, I don't know what to call it, uh, you know, a, a colorful life, let's call it. Um, mm, and that yeah. color, that color of your life really starts in the music industry. So something you said to me just before we got chatting as well, which I think is really important. Uh, you're a commercial music producer. You're in the game to make money. Because, you know, I was positing to you, this is a business audience. We don't often have like mm. people who make music in a business podcast, typically speaking. And yet mm. we're totally industry agnostic, right? We want to talk to pioneers and leaders who built meaningful businesses, understand how to drive revenue, build culture, um, live values and know how to fail and succeed. So mm. it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because when you think about music, you don't necessarily think about the business side of it. So give us a snapshot yeah. of your music career and give us a snapshot of the uh, the financial implications, the jobs, the people around you, the, the money made, the success. When I left college, I, I had a record deal with Atlantic Records as a very young person. And I thought then I, I wanted to be an artist. And then once I started flogging around the world, first of all, I thought, mm, this isn't necessarily playing to my strengths. But secondly, I was fascinated and obsessed by the recording studio, the process. I applied for jobs, every recording studio in the UK. And that's when I first ran up against the fact that people were worried about employing someone with dim sight. We'd kick over microphones or we wouldn't be able to see the knobs. I went to France and I actually got a gig at a French studio by complete chance. And the guy that owned the studio in the evening, because the French like to have dinner after a session, and he said, you seem very interested in all the equipment, Robin. I said, yes, I am. I love it. And he said, have you ever thought of training as a producer, as an engineer? I said, well, yes, but. And I took a deep breath and I said, you know, I was, I was a bit ashamed, Dan, of, of not having good vision. It didn't seem very cool to me. Um, a lot of people still hide hidden disabilities. And I was just on the cusp of mostly being able to get away with it, but with some quite bad bits of misunderstanding. He said, oh, don't worry about that. We can we can work around that. I still use that when I'm talking to business leaders and entrepreneurs 50 years later, well, 40 something years later. I said that that one moment where someone acknowledges your disability and says, don't worry about it. We can work around that. So I spent three years in France and by complete luck, it coincided with this studio called Le Chateau becoming the coolest studio in the world, total fluke. So I trained there for three years and worked there for another two years. I saw David Bowie record some of Low, most of Heroes, Elton John record Honky Chateau, Madman Across the Water, Grateful Dead, Fleetwood Mac, the whole of Jesus Christ Superstar, so I watched very successful records being made and I watched the dynamic between the producer, the person in charge and the artist. And I also, of course, sat in on a lot of sessions where the records weren't successful. And in my mind's eye, I was starting to learn what it was that was the difference. And the difference was that there was a sort of confluence of ambition that the artist needed to have that ambition and the producer needed to 
share that ambition with the artist. And that's when I started making, when I came back to England in 1980, I started to make good choices. And my good choices were, first of all, find the artist who wants it really, really badly and is going to work as hard at that as they are in the studio. But they had to work hard in the studio because the name of the game was make the best record you can and then do everything possible to draw people's attention to it. The second thing I asked when I was taking on a project from the record company was, is this a priority? Are you going to put marketing dollars behind it? And I suppose that's when I learned another great truth. You know, Dan, I would never put 50 pence into someone who came to me with a business plan, however good it was. And I said, okay, where's the marketing spend? Well, we're going to spend 1% on marketing. I go, then you will fail. I want to see 15%, maybe 20%. I wouldn't even be frightened of 50% that it's got to be marketed. Could I tell you the other great thing that I learned? Once again, from the guys that ran the Chateau, they had paid work, which kept the lights on and kept the staff employed, mostly weekdays. And being France, they mostly knocked off at dinner time. And this guy said, look, we've got this very valuable studio time, evenings and weekends. We think we should record some of these young up and coming bands. And Robin, because you're the nearest to their age and you don't mind working around the clock, you can record them. So I started recording them. And on a tape box at the bottom left hand corner, there's a little space. There's the artist, the track title, the time of the track, all the technical stuff. Bottom left hand corner, there's a little box which says producer. I'd written in Elton John's producer, Gus Dudgeon, David Bowie's producer, Tony Visconti, Arif Mardin, Saturday Night Fever. And there's this box with nothing in it. So being opportunistic, I wrote Robin Miller in the box. One of these artists got an underground reputation and got signed to a label. And the record came out. And of course, they just look at the label copy on the tape box. And the record came out and it said, producer Robin Miller. And it was a... It, it was more than an underground hit and less than a mainstream hit. It, you know, it was an indie cult hit. So suddenly all the record companies were piling in. It was, it was about just post-punk, time of new wave. All these bands, French bands, Telephone, Trust, Edit Nilon, Lily Drop. And I was working with all. Sometimes I could just write down engineer. Sometimes I could write down producer. And so when I came to London, I tried to raise money uh, with a young accountant called Patrick McKenna, who went on to found Ingenious Media, hugely successful. He was a young accountant. He sent me around the city with a business plan. And the business plan was, this young guy will buy a studio, he will rent out studio time to paying clients, and he will record during free time, and he will own the recordings. Because I had found out by that time that if you pay for the recordings, you own them. And I had this little skinny one-page agreement that I would get artists to sign, which said, you're going to work with me and I'm going to own the recordings. And the first thing I did was a charity record for Chilean Solidarity. And I summoned any musicians who could play Latin jazz. About 30 people turned up. We had a good time. We made the record. The record was released on Virgin. The following afternoon, a manager rang up and said, I managed this band called, they were called Pride. It was the Sade band. They were called Pride. Two of the members of the band played 
in your studio last night. They had a good time. They thought you did a good job corralling 30 people. Any chance we could come and visit you? So they came and visited me and I heard very rough demos of two songs, Your Love is King and Smooth Operator. Basically, a rhythm track and a scratch vocal. So I said, okay, we'll do a week with you. We recorded six of the 10 tracks that became the album Diamond Life, got them to sign a one-page piece of paper. We finished the record. The manager started taking the record round, got no interest from the record companies. And Sade's boyfriend at the time, Robert Elms, was a very cool young journalist. And he got all his mates from national newspapers to come to the global village in Charing Cross and a hastily put together gig. 600 people turned away at the door. The reason they were turned away at the door was because he'd got Sade on the front page of the face saying the face of 84. And uh, suddenly all the record companies who weren't interested in this rather jazzy stuff this was at the time when drum machines and electronics, Blamange, um, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, all the record companies had thought that's what we've got to have. But because of her sudden notoriety, they all wanted to sign up. Very interesting thing, Dan. The same record companies that had turned the records down six months later came queuing to the door. And years later, Rob Dickens, the head of Warners, I told him that story and he said, oh, yes, the music business. One thing you have to learn, Robin, is if we say no in March and then something changes and we say yes in September, you don't mention it and we don't mention it. Suddenly she had a record deal. Um, I owned the recordings. Well, she had a choice of record deals. She, she took the record deal that gave her the most control. They said, we can send you to America and work with Michael Jackson's producer, Quincy Jones. And she said, no, I'm quite happy working in Wilsdon with Robin Miller. Thank you. Do you reckon Michael Jackson had the same chat with Quincy? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, we had um, the record company offered me 12,000 quid to sell them the tapes, which was a lot of dough for me in those days. And I had a young friend who was just setting up on his own, a lawyer from Harbottle and Lewis, Andrew Thompson. And he said, you know, you, you don't need to sell them the records, you can license the records on an annual basis, which is what I did. And I didn't actually sell that music back to Sony until 1997. And in 1997, uh, you know, people think that selling out means selling out. It doesn't. I mean, I actually retained all my income stream as a record producer. I actually upped my royalties as a record producer but I handed over the copyrights and the masters, you know, for a substantial amount of money. I used that business model until 1990 when the studio climate changed. The Apple Mac meant that a lot of recordings could be done more cheaply than renting big studios. But so I then I sold, I'd, I'd acquired the same sort of rights in exchange for studio time with eight or nine, I'm not going to say who they were, but the household names now, you know, starting off. And I sold that business in 1990 for £4 million, which was amazing. And I, and I knew that it was time to get out. You know, don't, don't keep businesses too long. Sell them on the, 
on the rise. Let someone else earn the last dollar. Don't wait for the plateau because the plateau can happen very quickly. It's happening right now. There's been one... It's a very hard thing to know though, Robin. So sorry to interrupt you, but I guess like there's there's a a valuable lesson in here that you're trying to share. And at the same time, it's also very much a je ne sais quoi. So how do you get a sense of... That. Is it is it when a big technology change comes along, no matter what it is? So in this case, like you just mentioned, Apple. And so because you're unable to predict what that might do to the market, you're like, that feels in my gut like a good moment or opportunity. Or is there something more strategic than that? You've got to have your antennae out for how the pressures are changing. You've got to look at what else is happening around you in the marketplace. I was talking to other studio owners. I was getting increasing pushback from record companies on the daily rate and the daily price. Um, and they started saying like, well, we can we can make some of this record, not all of it, on an Apple Mac. So we'll just use your studio for the drums and the mixing. So at the first sign that the market might be on the change, I'm looking to exit. Really, really good insight. Thank you. And I suppose, you know, what's going on with AI music at the moment, again, would be another tell. Like you don't know exactly. Things are changing in the dynamic of the marketplace itself. So... Unless you're at the forefront of that, maybe it's a really good time to consider getting out. I agree. I agree. Don't don't have that level of expertise. We we sold up the business we started in 2013. We sold in 2019. My partners were not necessarily in agreement with me. I said, look, now is the time when we'll get a great price. We may not get the greatest price. We we sold well, I did a share swap and kept, as I said, you don't have to sell everything. I kept a minority interest in three of the four companies. But we sold in 2019 and things continued to snowball through 2021, 22 hypnosis. And then suddenly interest rates go, go up. So the money that hypnosis borrowed to buy music rights from superstars, they were suddenly paying 10, 12%, not 6, 7% um, coupon on their money. And of course, shareholders are notoriously jittery and jumpy and short-sighted. And the first rumblings of of shareholder unease at not getting their dividend. And now everyone's running for the door. And now the, the, the value of music sales and music assets is starting to plunge. And it will drop like a stone now over the next 12 months. Yeah. Wrongly, probably, but it will. Yeah, I see that. So... Yeah, I guess I want to touch on, you, you You were starting to talk about, you know, studios, you got out at four million pounds. And at that moment, I'm sure feeling, you know, happy for yourself, right? Because mm. that is a considerable amount of money to be mm. making uh, at a young age. I've also heard this story about Abbey Road Studios. And I wanted to know a little bit more about that. What was the circumstances around that? How did you get involved? How did you almost become part of that history? When I started um, business mentoring, which was in the early noughties. It was quite simple, quite naive. I'd learnt to work with singers and look for truth and truth that would come out of the speakers to people who didn't know the singer, never met the singer. They could be walking around Tesco and something in that vocal would touch something in people and make them believe it. So I started applying this in quite a sort of simplistic way in mentoring business leaders who were about to go and talk to the troops, rally the troops or, you know, talk about a major new partnership. And I ended up in the boardroom of 
EMI. And they, they had just unsuccessfully tried to merge with Warner Music and they were just getting interest from Guy Hans, venture capitalist. I worked with Eric uh, Nicoli, the then head of EMI, fantastic guy. And I was, the first thing I did was I listened to him sharing the stage with uh, Mr. Apple, the late great Mr. Apple, um, about a joint venture. And he was talking to the EMI troops in a packed Abbey Road. After the chat, we went back and I said, OK, I'm going to pay that back to you. All the time you were talking about this fantastic new joint venture with Apple, your voice came out shallow. It dropped in front of you. Your chest was tight. And then you finished that part of it and you started talking to your people about why you believed in your people. And without changing how much you were pushing your voice, your voice was coming out stronger, slightly deeper. You'd squared up, your shoulders had changed position. Anyway, Guy bought the business. And the day he bought the business, I walked into EMI and Eric said, he's sacked me. The good news, Robin, is I've just renewed your consultancy agreement for 12 months and put it in the filing cabinet on my way out of the door. Bless you, Eric. So six weeks later, phone rang and it was Guy. And I have to say at this point, by the way, a lot of the thinking that Guy had around EMI was absolutely spot on. Like, this is ridiculous. Why can't we make money out of a band that is selling a quarter of a million records? There's something wrong with this picture. There are four labels at EMI. There's one primetime Friday night show, Jonathan Ross. Three of the four labels are submitting a single to get played on that key show on the same Friday. Why is nobody talking? So many things. But of course, he wasn't a music person. And he, he didn't understand that unlike Biscuits, rock stars are temperamental, willful. They can dry up. So if he's banking on the Coldplay album coming through for his Q1 results and Chris Martin just hasn't written anything, Q1 is a disaster. So I think he was already quite confused. And also he decided he needed cash. So he said, I want you to sell Abbey Road as soon as possible. See how and so EMI, EMI owned Abbey Road at that point, mm. right? Mm. So I said, OK, all right. So I thought about it. I looked around and I ended up with Paul Allen's office, uh, the other half of Microsoft, who I knew had already 15 recording studios around the world and had started the Rock and Roll Heritage Museum in Seattle. I got a very substantial offer for Abbey Road. This was all good until Chris Evans and Gary Barlow decided that they wanted to go on a crusade saying Vulture Guy Hands sells jewel in UK music's crown to the Americans. So I got a call from Guernsey at seven in the morning going, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is a PR disaster. And I think more or less it said, it's your fault, Robin. Stop the sale. Stop the sale immediately. So the sale fell through and I did very, very little more for him in that time. So um, and ironically, of course, after I'd left, he needed to sell back to Citigroup. Citigroup in a fire sale sold EMI 
to Universal. So Universal, owned by a French water company, then owned Abbey Road. So you, you take you take your pick, really. Which is which is better, Paul Allen, an absolute devotee of music, who had pledged to put the money in, put a foundation, a lump sum in to ensure it would always stay a recording studio, or a French water company. Universal, through antitrust laws, had to sell part of EMI to Warners, and Warners, in their turn, had to sell part of what they bought. Same anti-competition. And that included Chrysalis. And of course, I knew Chrysalis from doing all the financial work with EMI back in 26, 27, 28. And I saw what it was going under the hammer for in 2013. Jeremy LaSalle's very experienced record company man came to me and said, I want to start a startup. I've never started a startup. I've only worked for big record companies. I've got a good idea. And it was a good idea to start an integrated music company with a catalogue, very like the recording studios, Dan. The recording studios turnover, their overhead was paid by paid customers working nine to five, Monday to Friday. That, that was their break even. So the venture was to use free time, don't charge for it, but look at the upside. So very similar situation. Uh, Jeremy said, if we get a record catalogue or a publishing catalogue, that'll pay, that'll take 15 people to run it. Mining that catalogue, which I knew had been very, very neglected, the because it had changed hands, remember, you know, three times. I knew it was neglected. So I knew, for a perfect example, Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor was not available on Spotify along with hundreds, thousands of other tracks. So we chose Chrysalis. We, he and I, well, we put in 400K to start up in 2014. We got Chrysalis in 2016 on a good old fashioned model. I said, we don't want bank borrowing. We really don't want bank borrowing. So we did a deal with Cobalt that they would get an exclusive distribution deal for Chrysalis for, I think it was five, year, five years, and they would advance us against a higher than usual royalty rate. They'd advance us all the money to buy Chrysalis, which they did. So we bought Chrysalis, and instead of the normal sort of 8 10%, we were paying a 30, 30% distribution fee, which I knew we could just about break even on. And that gave us the money to support managers who were working on their own, overworked, under-resourced. Here's a room full of 15 people. We're putting out 30, 40 records a year. We can protect you by telling you what your record company are doing right or wrong. We can make sure all your tracks are registered. We can do all your financial administration and leave you to get to work. And the first two managers we signed up, looked up one of them looked after a band called Cigarettes After Sex, who were playing three, 400 seaters. And the other was an American artist called Phoebe Bridges who was touring around America in a car, playing to four or 500 seaters. Both those, but we still, I'm still 25% shareholder of the management company. Phoebe has just sold out Madison Square Gardens, 22,000 tickets. Uh, cigarettes After Sex play on average nine, 10,000 seaters in 20 countries. And having that resource to cover the overhead allowed us to resource those managers. Very crucial things like 
if you're touring America, you've got to tour with them because there'll be predatory managers backstage saying, where's your manager? Where's your, oh, doesn't he come to your gigs? Oh, for our management company, we yes, come to all the gigs. you have to protect your talent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the the short version of EMI, Abbey Road, and then Chrysalis. Okay, and so for Chrysalis, what was the outcome? As in, what where, where did this journey end up, so to speak, with your involvement? Well, we started the company for 400 grand. We sold it in 2019 in a mixture of a share swap for Reservoir, the American company who were going to invest. They, they wanted the catalogue because they're a catalogue company, really. We retained a minority stake in the publishing company, the management company, and the frontline record company. And we sold it for 40 million in 2019. And both of us were on a three-year earnout. Mine finished at the beginning of end of 2022. Jeremy has elected to stay on. It's his love. You know, the, uh, the money's there, deep pockets. We can put out a lot more records now. We can sign up more artists to the management company. And I stepped down and walked away. So free agent and free agent to do, I'm assuming, follow some of your passions. So that takes us nicely into, I think, a really important life lesson and a really important aspect to your career. And I'm making a huge assumption here, by the way, but, you know, knighthood to a sir, I'm assuming that doesn't all come down to your music success, probably comes down to your principles and to the way that you live your life and support others. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Robin, what is the more interesting side to your life? Well, around the time that the Sade record broke big, I told you I was approached by a, a Chilean solidarity, 10 years of Pinochet's regime, no longer on the front page. Look how quickly things change. You know, the Middle East difficulties have come along. Is anyone talking about the Libyan dams and floods now? Is anyone talking about the earthquake in Morocco, which I was in Marrakesh when that earthquake struck four weeks ago. No one's talking about it now. So memories are short. Chilean solidarity, 10 years on. We made the record. And because we'd made the record, I was approached by Artists Against Apartheid and then Band-Aid. And so I started to get involved. And what I found it did to me was it allowed me to look outwards, not inwards, and take myself out of the middle of the picture. And once I'd experienced a refugee camp with very young people trying to make a fist of it against the terrible odds, and one of the girls who was eight years old had been uh, blinded by a attacking force of intruders, I thought, my God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well off I'm in Western society. I've got a loving family. I've got the beginnings of success. She's blind. I'm blind. Have some perspective, Robin. And one thing led to another. I think I just became known as somebody who would provide resources, provide expertise, provide studio time, try to influence change. And Oxfam, Namibian Freedom Fighters, Angola. I was quite a lefty. I was quite a lefty. So I was quite anti-establishment, didn't, didn't like people being oppressed. So that really informed the next 20 years, but not disability. I think looking back, I was still 
walking in the other direction. I'm not a career disabled person. One thing I am, though, is something you touched on before the interview started, Dan, about being self-employed if you've got retinitis pigmentosa or another illness. It's forced upon us. I told you I tried to raise money for the recording studio. No one's ever offered me a job. With everything I've achieved in the last 40 years, I have never, ever been offered a paid job of any kind by any UK company. So what you find is when you meet a woman of colour, a person with a disability, if they're doing anything, the chances are they'll have the word founder on the bottom of their email. It's extraordinarily common. So we found and we develop things. That's that's how we do it. We have to do it for ourselves. So disability wasn't really part of my life until 2020, when lockdown came. I was sitting here where I'm talking to you from now. I got three calls from three headhunters, recruitment agencies, in three weeks asking whether I would become the head of a major charity. And I thought, well, I've got to put two and two together here. Why now? Why why three? Why me? The reasons were, A, you have to have someone at the head of your organisation if you're representing a group of people who looks the part. So in, in this case, they figured they needed somebody with a very obvious lifelong disability. The second thing was all the shops were shut. Hundreds of shops were shut, revenue gone. So they were all hemorrhaging money. So they needed somebody who they had had a track record of stabilizing, not a lame duck, you know, but but a loss-making organization. Bear in mind that I've never been offered a job. Who else are they gonna who else are they gonna find? You know, right now, as I'm sitting here talking to you, there isn't a single senior leader of a FTSE top one hundred company with a declared disability. Not one, not two, not three, zero, zero. So where were they going to look? They came to me. I was still, I was startled. Me heading up a disability organization. God, that's not something I thought about. And then very simple. I looked into it and I found that six out of 10 people who were dying from COVID were disabled. And it's like, what? Six out of 10? Only 20% at the most of British people are disabled. How come six out of 10? So I, I took it on and I asked the government in the, in the middle of all this to look into it because I knew that there were other demographics, other groups that were being disproportionately affected, not as much as disabled people, and they were funding university programs, etc. And to my annoyance still, Nobody picked up the gauntlet. Nobody thought that this was a problem worth worrying about. And to this day, by the way, we still don't know why six out of 10 people who died from COVID were disabled. So by that time, I picked up the gauntlet and I chose Scope because one of them was a blind charity. And I think because of my work in the field, in Africa, in Asia, going out, spending a lot of time in the field with the UN, I had a much broader look about the problems that people with disabilities shared rather than uniquely to one group or another group. Secondly, I didn't particularly like the idea of competition between blind people or deaf people or wheelchair users or, you know, saying, 
we want our share of this pot. So I thought Scope was focusing on the things that all disabled people had in common. And from my own experience, I realized there was something going on, which is that there was the beginnings of diversity, inclusion, and equity being written above the boardroom tables of anxious business leaders going, we know we need to look into all this now. They'd already crossed the threshold of doing things for the environment instead of being robber barons, but they didn't know how to deal with the disability issue. And what was happening was lots of workshops were coming out explaining how you could get disabled people into employment. And about a year and a half ago, I wrote a piece which said, this isn't about how you employ disabled people. This is about why you should employ disabled people. Yes, there are things like resilience, dedication, determination, loyalty, above average performance in university. On average, disabled people get one grade higher than their non-disabled counterparts. And then this fabulous statistic from Accenture in the US, 140 companies, detailed examination, and the ones that were the farthest along the line of disability inclusion were averaging 28% more revenue than the ones that were the least evolved. I take that into conversations with people and I say, okay, it's the CFO in the room. Would you like to increase your net revenue uh, by 28%? Yes. How are you going to do it? Well, increase sales or saving costs. Mm, there's a third way. Employ lots of disabled people. We don't know how. Okay. The how is not a series of workshops because there's an awkwardness in there. It's a habit. It's a daily, it's an hourly, it's a weekly habit. It's familiarity. It's making it normal. Disabled people just want to live the same lives as everybody else. The payback to you is the rest of the staff will stay longer. Your recruitment cost will go down. Despite the fact that sometimes disabled people need more sick leave, if overall your company will find it's taking less days off sick. It's got a better connection to its customer base. This is 20% of the population. Let's say on average, they've got a support group of two. That's not many, a mum and a brother, a next door neighbor. You've suddenly got half the country. So you're saying, so what you're saying is you have no insight inside the organization of what half the country are thinking, feeling, what they need, how to behave to them, how to talk to them, how to sell the right things to them. I think it's a good example as well of, you know, if you want to change something inside organizations, actually gathering data and presenting a business case is the fairest, most reasonable way. Like, yes, we all wish, we all wish that everyone had hearts of gold and did the right thing and all of these lovely fluffy things. But fundamentally, if you want the world to improve, then use data and case studies and examples of how people in a free market, given the right opportunities and given the right impetus to work hard, will provide better results. And, you know, I think about this often in the environmental space. You can force people to give up meat and try and turn everyone vegan, or you could do what Elon Musk did and make electric cars sexy. At the end of the day, you know, you get a lot of uh, a lot of cultural, angry uh, people screaming at others about how to change their habits and change the way that they live and change how they eat and all of these things. 
which is very difficult to do with a massive amount of people changing that many people's daily habits and daily beliefs and daily behaviors. But there's another way. And, you know, no one saw that sort of electric car movement coming. And you look at CO2 emissions impact and turns out that making electric cars sexy and moving people off just petrol was brilliant initiative that has done more to impact the environmental debate than anything else because it is a progressive movement that involves corporate profits. I agree with you completely. Something that's really surprised me, Dan, in my own industry, music, is that people have been quick to demonise Spotify. Using your analogy exactly, no one seems to be cottoning on to the fact that Spotify is now, and YouTube, is now the way that you can consume new music. You can see on YouTube the cover, the sleeve, all the rest of it. And you don't have to make vinyl in a toxic factory in India, put it on boats, send it to Czechoslovakia, then send it to Southampton, then put it on another boat and ship it all the way to New Zealand in order for people to have the record in their hand. The stumbling block here, ironically, is a lot of the artists are citing exactly what you're talking about, veganism, sustainability and all the rest of it. They're falling short, though, because they want the record. They want that physical artifact. If you say to them, you know, the best thing you could do, it's all available thanks to Spotify and Amazon Music and Apple now. You don't need to make this record thing anymore. Why don't you stop? Have you imagined the impact on the environment of just stopping doing that? And there's a sort of, mm, 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 yeah, but, mm, yeah. And I don't think there is a yeah, but. Some record company or major artist has got to put their head above the parapet and say, do you know what? This is absolutely ridiculous. These, this vinyl is being produced in some of the most toxic production environments in India involving some very young people imaginable. The amount of money in freight and shipping charges and paper is absurd. And thanks to Spotify, to use your analogy of the electric car, it's not necessary because actually Spotify is better. You can go on adventures. You can go from one recording down a rabbit hole to another. YouTube, you can listen to something. You can watch it. You'll see a link that the artist says, my influences were so-and-so. You can listen to them straight away. It's a fabulous, exciting new world. It is going to take a leader to say, do you know what? This is wrong. We don't need it. We've got something better now. We're still waiting for that to happen. Yeah, and I think the potentially also the reason that is the case, and this is my personal view on why you know private companies create innovation over national organizations, it just takes one complete maniac with absurd confidence and belief and innovation and dynamism, like a Daniel Ek, like an Elon Musk, to just go for it and just absorb all the criticism and all of the things that happen along the way, all of the people that want to cancel you, shut you down, change your mind, because they live in fear of change, obviously, because change hurts them and the old way changing is not good for their business. But you need someone with that kind of confidence that this is the future to move things forward. Well, we certainly... Look, Coldplay tried to go carbon neutral on their tour. Mm. I think very admirably, they had cycles that they took around the world and people cycled as they were listening to the gigs to generate the power. 
They had trampoline floors that were generating electricity by people bouncing up and down. It's good stuff, that. It's, it's very good stuff. However, Taylor Swift now is monetizing the recordings of her Round the World tour. What she might do well to do is to think about eliminating the Round the World tour bit and focus on the recording bit. Well, and she also comes under a lot of criticism for basically taking a private jet absolutely everywhere in between. So She does. Not really helping. She does. There's more hypocrisy in in my game than in many others. I I can imagine that, yeah. Mm. Okay, so, Robin, we're coming towards the end of the interview. You've got so much wisdom and so much experience to share that it would be remiss of me not to ask you some pertinent questions. So you've had, obviously, a long and varied career. I want to know what some of the most impactful business lessons that... Not just that you've learned, but as a business mentor, which is a large part of your life now, that you share regularly with other people to help guide them in the right direction. Okay. First and foremost, number one, your business plan. These are a set of projections as to what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and how well it's going to do over the next one, two, three, then a less granular level, four, five and outwards from there. This business plan is for you. It's not to pull the wool over the eyes of a potential financier or investor. It's for you. You have to believe it. It has to be true as you see it. And if it's not true as you see it, you are a fool if you try and massage any aspect of that business plan in order to raise money. So that's the first thing, Dan, is your business plan is for you. And you've got to stand by it, look at it. And if it doesn't look right before you ever show it to anyone else, you change, you adjust, you change the business model. The second thing radiating out from that is that projections are basically dreaming. They are by definition dreaming. You don't really know what's going to happen. So your business plan has to include the certain. And it's like any portfolio. I know I've used the examples of the recording studio. I've used the example of buying the catalogue. So my advice is that you have a core platform that you start from, which is not entirely dependent upon pie in the sky. You start off saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to open a hotel. It's going to have 60 rooms. It's not going to achieve more than 50% occupancy, but that will pay the bills. We're going to actually, instead of just having a normal kitchen, we're going to have pop-ups. We're going to outsource. You then start using your imagination. You start thinking, can we use the brand? But your core, I don't like the word startup. Don't start your startup with a website. That That's absolute folly. You know, spending thousands of pounds, lots of time on a website. Just start, just start doing something. Buy that tumble down hotel, get in there, give it a lick of paint, make it a bit more cool, make it a bit more desirable, see how you run. Then you've got your plans ready and waiting to go. I, I do really think that's the truth. Um, meetings, meetings are, it's an easy way of filling up the day. It's got worse since Zoom. Back-to-back meetings, nine o'clock till five o'clock. Look at that calendar. If it's full of back-to-back meetings, the chances are they're all too long or some of them might be too short. They're all arbitrary, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. Most of them, they become toxic. They become an end in themselves. So every time you have a business meeting, just think of it as a waste of time. And, and it really has to justify itself. 
if you're going to have business meetings, my I suggested ideal time is 15 minutes. It focuses the mind, it gets things done, and then you're out of there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a few in there, right? I have to ask, if there was one piece of advice that you felt like you, you know, was the hill you were going to die on, what was it going to be? Adventure should be real, not imagined. So can you expand on that? Yeah. You know, I said that business plans are dreaming. So you're dreaming about something that might happen in the future. It's got to be real from the get-go and you've got to be prepared to walk the walk, go the miles, do the distance. I don't like this be prepared to fail thing. Be prepared to graft and work and be so certain and confident that your business plan was for you and it will work that when you are trying to persuade people to come on that journey, it's an inviolable truth and you can stand behind it and believe in it. It is an adventure. It's a, it's a great adventure, setting up a business and getting off the ground. And it has to stay an adventure, but it has to stay a real achievable adventure. There's no good sitting at home in London saying, I'm going to go to the South Pole. You have to plan the journey. You have to plan it step by step. You have to have the right team and you have to say, we can get safely to within a thousand miles of the goal and it's sustainable and it's viable and people will actually pay us to get there. And preferably, we can do some valuable research while we're on the way and that will get us to that 1000 point. And then that last little bit, which is like the last 5% of any investor's portfolio, which should be the high risk part, don't bet the farm. Um, just just reserve that last, I would say, 5% or 10% maximum on the speculative hunch, the adventure. It has to be there, but it has to be a able to not work the first time around and you still have to have something to fall back on to regroup and have another go. And probably rethink your uh, imagined timelines around it, right? Because like all the every, all the time. every journey... It takes all longer. the time, all the yeah. time. Yeah, all, all the time. Also, if the Norwegians are 600 miles ahead, you have to find out why. I mean, if you're starting a pub, what's the first thing you do? You go around your area until you find which is the pub that's got 300 people queuing up outside the door. Stand across the road you know, and watch it and then go in and work uh, and work at it. Go in and talk to the people who run it. It's amazing. People will tell you anything, you know, if you go in and ask them, how are you doing this? What, what are you doing that's differently? Can I come and work for you for six months, for a year? Like I did at the Chateau, you know, for three years. Can I get behind the scenes? A really good entrepreneur. I mean, I remember somebody coming to us in the company and say, uh, interview, by the way, I'd like to say this to you. At some point, I want to set up my own music company. And I said, I wouldn't employ someone who didn't. Yeah, absolutely. They're there to learn the passion, right? And they're there to learn exactly how the thing works. And something that I've always said about employees in an ideal world, you don't own them. So, you know, they're not slaves, you're employing them. So realistically, you are borrowing their best years, you're borrowing their best time. And you are hopefully getting the most out of them that you possibly can in a mutually agreed arrangement where you're paying them to be the very best they can be to acquire the skills that they need to go further until they outgrow you as well. And then they move on. And at best, 
you've borrowed their best time, they've helped you forge, you've helped them, and you start the cycle again. And that is the reality of most employers. Can I just expand on that a little bit? Please. From when I started my first business, obviously because I'd been an apprentice, the first two people I took on were apprentices. One of them was a middle-class guy recently graduated from a red brick university. The other one was two months out of Felton Young Offenders Institute. They both went on to do very well. The mantra of the company, somebody just wrote to me last week, actually, who was there in the 80s. And he said, oh, I remember what you used to say, Robin. Um, my priority is you lot and your priority is the client. I'll die for you. You die for the client. And when we started the business in 2014, I said to Jeremy, obsess about the people who work for us. Don't worry about the bottom line. Make sure that all the processes are properly managed and that there are proper lines of authority and responsibility from end to end someone's going to take responsibility for doing it but obsess and when covid struck we just went full bore obsessing on the well-being of our workforce and they spent all the time obsessing on the well-being of the artists and writers and we outperformed the business in 20 20 to 21, 21, 22, by a significant margin without wondering or worrying about what was going to have impact on this, what was going to have impact on the other. So when I say obsess about the well-being of the workforce, it's about allowing them, what you said, Dan, it's about allowing them to be their best. And that's why, of course, I say, if you employ single mums, LGBT, people of colour, people with disabilities in a way that allows them to thrive and you absolutely obsess on every detail of that all the time, you'll have a phenomenal workforce without any of the kind of disgruntled, you know, self-interest. Yeah, equality and gratitude are powerful drugs. Yeah, I suppose it is gratitude, really. I mean, yes, we got a huge amount of gratitude. We still do. We get a lot of, of staff saying, I am the envy of my friends as to how life was with you during COVID. Robin, it's been a massive pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights on Secret Leaders. I'm touched to have met someone who can also just experience a life incredibly powerfully lived, not in spite of being blind, but because of being blind and the superpowers that it's given you. It's inspiring for me to hear, and I hope it's really inspiring for others to hear as well. So I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you, Dan. I'm grateful to you too. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.